Welcome to the Mosaic Church Sermon Podcast. Mosaic Church seeks to engage the modern age with the historic Christian faith. If you don't have a home church, please don't use this podcast as a substitute for being a member of a local community of faith. Whether you call Mosaic your home or not, we hope that you find this sermon convicting and encouraging in your walk with Jesus. Here's our lead pastor, Pastor Greg Brown, with this week's sermon. Today, we are going to continue our series in family values. Uh, We've talked about uh, the gospel being core to who we are as Christians. In fact, you can't be a Christian without the gospel, the true gospel of Jesus Christ. We've talked about the authority of Scripture, how we look to the Scriptures to see what it is that God has to say for us. And it guides our lives and our faith. It is the only infallible rule of faith and life for the Christian. Today, we're going to get into uh, something else that sort of makes us who we are as a church. We're going to talk about the sovereignty of God and salvation. If you've been around for a little while, you know that we're a Reformed Baptist church. We use these words. Um, And it's important that we concern ourselves with what that really means, right? Because words have to mean something. Otherwise, it's just a label that we use to maybe look cool or to look not cool because that's cool. You know what I mean? It's like the hipster thing, right? It's cool because it's not cool. But that's not why we use these words. It's because they mean something to us. When we say we're Reformed or we're Calvinist, we're trying to relate an idea to someone. We're trying to say, hey, look, this is a particular uh, sort of stream of Christianity that we tend to flow in. We want to be upfront and honest with you about who we are, how we interpret the scriptures. And I believe that if we live by this principle of, of God's sovereignty in salvation, this idea that he puts forward in his word for us, that our lives are changed by it. We are emboldened to go out into the mission field. We are We are able to live joyfully because ultimately salvation is a gift from God and not simply the choice of an an individual, but a miracle, a true miracle, a transformative thing that the Holy Spirit does. We are able to live obedient lives as well because we understand that our sin and the command of God are are, are two, our sin is is the, the, the... the antithesis to the command of God, and we see God's commands and we see, okay, like he's given us these things, but he's also paid for all of this sovereignly by, by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the sacrifice of Christ. And so we can live obedient lives if we consider the, the holiness and sovereignty of God. We can be confident. Because if God isn't fully sovereign over all things, then how can he bring to pass whatever it is that he has planned. Today we're going to look at a passage. If you want to start flipping there, you can. It's going to be Romans 8. Uh, we're going to start in verse 28, and we will go through 30. Who knows? I might hit 31, and we might talk about the end of the chapter too. So we're kind of winging it today. It's going to be fun. But I want to step back for a second. Uh, just because I know that words like Reformed, Calvinist, even predestination and election, which are biblical words, by the way. You have to address that if you read the scriptures. But these are, these are just words. And I realize, though, that they can trigger certain things in us if you've been around the Christian uh, culture for very long. 
So what does reformed mean? I want to start with that, and I want to make sure that I, I help you guys to understand what that means uh, before we jump into the scriptures. Because ultimately, we're going to, going to read the scriptures, and we're going to, to see what God has to say. We're not going to read the scriptures from a Calvinist perspective. We're not going to read the scriptures from some preconceived idea. We're just going to go to the scriptures, and we're going to ask, what does God have to say? But when I use words like this, I want you to know what they mean. To be reformed means that we are confessional. It means we hold to a historic confession of faith. Not, not that that's inerrant, but that it is a good summary of the, the doctrines that God has placed in his word for us. We say th- this is a way that in a, in a concise format we can relate to someone else what it is we believe about the word of God. Because we've seen Christians say, well, I have, I have no confession or no creed but the Bible. But we've seen that Christians can often disagree when they read the Bible. So we want to be upfront and honest. We want to say, this is our confession of faith. This is what we believe the Bible says as a summary. We're also covenantal. We believe that God interfaces with his people by means of covenant, that he makes particularly a sovereign covenant, a one-sided covenant even, with his people through the covenant of grace. He says, not only do I hold you to a holy standard, but I'll pay the price for you not living up to that holy standard. But finally, we are Calvinist, and that's probably the most divisive word that I could possibly use in some circles. First of all, I want you to know we don't worship John Calvin if I use this word. (laughs) Christian means we worship Christ, I recognize that. Calvinist does not mean we worship, venerate, or think of John Calvin as someone who is uh, far above us in holiness and that we should worship as if he's uh, some sort of saint or something like that. That's not what's going on here. If we use this word, it simply means that we believe in God's absolute sovereignty and salvation. Again, these are not bad words. They're words that are intended to convey ideas. So I don't want you to get too up in arms if I use words like this because I want to relate these ideas to you. I want to talk to you about God's sovereignty and salvation. Again, the passage today is going to be uh, Romans 8, 28 through 30, and we'll probably talk about 31 and 38 and 39. We'll see how far we get. Again, uh, this isn't a sermon on Reformation theology, okay? It's a sermon on the Word of God. It's a sermon about salvation, what God does in salvation. Because I think it's easy for us to see the man, like the, the, the person side of salvation. We can go, okay, well, okay, I, can, I have a salvation story. Someone preached the gospel to me. I, I thought about it, I considered it, and I made a decision. And when I made that decision, Jesus came into my heart, and then I tried to live a holy life, not out of uh, compulsion, but because I, I want to be thankful and worshipful toward the God who saved me, right? We can understand this, and it's normal for for all of us. If you are a Christian today, you have this story. But this sermon today is about the God side of salvation. It's It's a God perspective on what happens in salvation. My hope is that by the end of this sermon, you're going to be more certain of God's incredible grace toward you, a sinner, that you will be more confident that holiness is worth pursuing and that you will be more thankful to God for salvation, and this will draw you into worship. That is really the ultimate goal of this entire sermon. You're going to look for a lot of application here, but I'm going to tell you the primary thing I want you to apply this in is worship. I want you to see God for who he is in salvation. 
So why don't you guys stand with me as we read Romans 8, 28 through 30. Actually, I'm going to read 31 while we're at it. We stand to recognize the word of God as something that is far above a fallible sermon like the one I'm about to preach. <laughs> Romans 8, 28 through 31 says this, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that in order, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? May God bless the reading of his word. Let's go to him in prayer. Lord God, I pray that you would help us this morning to understand this text by the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, do not let a word come from my mouth that is not wrought by you. Lord, help me to preach this text in a way that encourages your people to worship you for your sovereign hand in salvation. I pray, Lord God, that you would correct us, you would mold us into the image of Christ as you promise in this passage, and that your Holy Spirit would do this. I thank you, Lord. Open our hearts today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Go ahead and have a seat, and I'm going to find my water. So as we look at this text, you probably know Romans 8.28, right? You've heard it before. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Pretty familiar passage, at least I hope it is. It's a great passage. I love that verse. In fact, that's the, the beginning of the inscription that's on my guitar strap over there. I have Romans 8.28 through the end of the chapter written on, on that guitar strap to remind me of what God does in salvation. And that first bit is incredible. All things work together for good for those who love God. But what's good? That's the first question we really have to ask here. What is good in the context of this passage? Look, it's not like cookies, all right? Cookies are good. I like cookies. Do you guys like cookies? If you don't like cookies, you can think of something else, all right? Good in this passage is not cookies. It's not just a temporary satisfaction, happiness sort of thing that you get from eating a, a nice warm chocolate chip cookie, kind of gooey in the middle. If you don't like gooey cookies, I'm sorry. Um, they're the only way to eat them, by the way. It's not like cookies. It's something else. It's something more eternal. It's something more spiritual. It is something far different than just temporary happiness. Because often you read this passage and, you, and you're like, well, all things work together for good. And that's somehow an excuse for like, well, the situation you're in isn't bad. It's actually working together for good. So there it is. Don't be sad. Which is, by the way, the worst thing you can possibly tell someone who's sad or hurting. All things work together for good. No big deal. No. But there is hope that we see here. There is an eternal thing that's happening here. What is our good? In the context of this passage, it's conforming to the image of Christ. Again, you read further on in verse 29. 
It says he has predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. Good is a definite progression toward an end state. Good is a definite progression toward an end state. So it's not good in a temporary sense, it's good in an eternal sense. It's the good of a relationship with God, first and foremost. John 17, 21, which is Christ's high priestly prayer for his people. He prays that we might be in Christ, that, he may, that we might be in him as he is in the Father. This is our good. What else is our good? Well, our good is conforming to the image of Christ in suffering. Yes, we suffer, but we can take joy in it knowing it's going toward our sanctification. It's our good in holiness driving us toward a more holy and glorifying life to God. And ultimately, our good is glory. It's that final state where death is done away with, where we are made new, get new bodies. There's no more pain, no more death. That final state, that's our good. And so we, when God says in his word, we know that all, for those who love God, all things work together for good, that's what we're talking about today. It's this eternal salvation. It's working toward that. No matter how difficult your current situation is, your past has been, you can say it was worth it because it is conforming me to the image of Christ, which is glory. Man, like th- that passage alone just gets me going. All things work together for good. The, the idea that the, the worst stuff I've gone through was somehow working toward my sanctification, my holiness, and that final state of glory, that makes it worth it. It means, it means something. Because otherwise, it's just random stuff that happens. How horrible is that? No, it's, it's God's sovereign plan through my life, and he is working me and molding me. And yes, sometimes that is painful and incredibly so, but he is doing it so that in the end, I can be presented to him in glory with that holiness without which no one will see God. But we've probably gone too far already. We talk about for our good. But we always say for our good, for my good, right? But we need to ask the question, for whom do all things work together for good? Who in particular? We need to read this passage the first, maybe this is super easy and you're just like, oh yeah, yeah, I got this. It says, we know that for those who love God and all those who are called according to his purpose. Well, it's, it's easy then, right? Who loves God? Well, I do. Do you? I hope you all love God. So it's easy to read yourself into this passage quite nicely. And, and you should, by the way. I'm not saying you shouldn't. But we have to start before we love God. How did we come to love God is the question that's implied in this passage. How did we go from a state of spiritual deadness and being at enmity with God to a state of loving God? What happened? Something changed in us. 
If we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and if we were following the prince of the power of the air, like Ephesians 2 says, how were we changed? Romans 1 says no one seeks for God. How how were we changed such that we could love God? How did we come to love a God that we never sought out? Something had to have happened, and, and that's really what the rest of this passage is all about. See, it kind of starts at the end. All things work together for good, right? It goes toward eternal glory, which is the end of, of verse 30. But there's stuff in between here, and we need to think about that. We need to consider what God has done in salvation. So the question that's answered by this text is, how does God save? That's the question that is answered by this passage. Again, from a human perspective, there's sort of a five-step process to salvation, okay? Step one, someone preaches the gospel to you. You hear it through a song, through a prayer, through a pastor preaching, through a friend. You come to know about your own sin and also the, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ who died for sinners. Someone has to tell you that. Step one, preaching. Step two, considering. You sit and you go, man, I heard this thing. Do, do I believe that this is something that was historically true at all? Well, maybe the answer is yes. Step two, do, do I believe that this is something that I can trust in? Can I actually trust Jesus Christ to save my soul? Maybe you say yes. Step three, you decide. You say yes. I do trust Jesus Christ. And then you pray the, the, the prayer of faith, right? Typically, this is a prayer of confession. Lord, I confess my sins to you. I, I want Jesus to come into my heart. What a wonderful prayer. And then finally, this is the state I think that, that all of us in this room are in. We spend our lives worshiping. This is really the, the final state of of all Christians, whether here or in glory, we spend the rest of eternity worshiping. All right, that's a human perspective on salvation. There is nothing in Reformed theology that refutes any of this. Some people would like to go, oh, well, that means I don't have a choice and I need to, I want to talk about like the, the finer points of some of this. No, like you made real choices. You did real considering and you have done real praying and you have worshiped aright and truly by your own choice, by your own will. Nothing in Reformed theology refutes this. But God's sovereign will stands above the will of man. We have to think about what God had to do and what he does in the course of salvation so that we make these decisions, these choices. He changes us. Yes, I've already said this. It is a transformative thing. And so we're going to look at this step by step through this passage. Romans uh, 8.29 says, Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. This foreknowledge is very interesting. A lot of people look at this passage and they say, oh, well, this is, this is foreknowledge like he foreknows everyone. Obviously, God is omniscient. We, I think we generally accept this as Christians. 
God is omniscient. He knows everyone to one degree or another. In fact, he knows everyone perfectly. But this word being used here is, is not a general word. We see this by the rest of the passage. It says, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the, to the image of his son. And then it goes on, and it says that, and if you follow the logic, those whom he foreknew, he also glorified. There is a particular set of people that he foreknows in a particular and special way. This word here in the Greek that they translate foreknow or foreknew is a sovereign choosing, selection, if you want to use the biblical word. It's like in Jeremiah 1.5, it says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Before I formed you in the, in the womb, I knew you. It's not a general knowing. I knew you personally and deeply and individually. I knew you. It's, it's a deeply personal knowledge. This is maybe mildly helpful. Before Ashley and, and I met person to person, I had a general idea of her existence. I had seen her around church, and she was there. I didn't really know her, but I knew about her. I accepted her as a, a fact of existence, if you will. Yeah, I'm a very harsh and, and cold person. I know, I'm sorry. But I, I accepted her existence as, as fact. But it had no personal effect on me. I had no personal relationship with her. And when we met, uh, we had a personal relationship, but it wasn't deep, right? My first impression of, of her, and I, I wish she was here so she could defend herself. Um, but when I, when I first met her, I was like, this girl's a snob. My goodness. Uh, and she was like, this guy is a complete geek. He's just a dork. And she was actually more right than I was. Um, verified by Dale. I was like, man, this girl, I don't, I don't know. I don't really like her too much. <laughs> but our, our relationship grew, um, I think kind of unintentionally, but uh, obviously, obviously according to God's plan. And, and I realized she wasn't a snob. She's just kind of persnickety, and I kind of like that. At times, uh, at this point, you know, 13 years after we've gotten married, I think we, we met almost 20 years ago. Um, you know, I, there are times where I know her better than she knows herself. Like, I can predict her actions before she does them. And I'm like, oh, yeah, you're going to do this next. And she's like, how did you know I was about that? I hadn't even thought about that. And we're still growing in our relationship. We're still getting to know one another more deeply and but we're loving it, and it's, it's, it's an amazing thing. This idea of knowledge, knowing someone, is what is going on in this passage. It's a personal thing. It's an individual thing. He foreknew, means beforehand, he knew deeply and personally, before we even existed, who we are, deeply and personally. It is special, this sort of foreknowledge. Not all people are known by God in this way. It says he knew Israel. It says that he knew Jeremiah. It's a different sort of knowing than this general knowledge that God might have. 
Furthermore, as I, I, as I just said, only those who are ultimately glorified are foreknown in this way by God. We have to work backwards through this passage. There's no exclusion here. It's, it's definite. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Well, who did he predestine in the beginning? Those whom he foreknew. There's no culling happening. And like, it's not a funnel. Am I making sense? It's not a V-shape. It's a pipe, straight. All those whom he foreknew in this way, he also predestined and called and justified and glorified. So the, the question then becomes, like, what, why are we talking about foreknowledge as if it's different from predestination? If, there, if he uses it in two different ways here. Well, foreknowledge is a knowing. It's a choosing beforehand. Predestination is a decision beforehand. It's, an, it's a decision on the end state. Okay? So in all eternity, in eternity past, before there was anything at all, before you even were a, a thought of maybe existing in anyone else's mind, God knew you, chose you, and said, that one will be mine. He said, I am going to predestine them to be conformed to the image of my son. If you have a problem with that sort of idea, you should read the, the passage again. It says, those whom he predestined, or he, those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And not only did he predestine us for that final state, but he predestined every bit along the way, every step in the process. This is sort of a summary so far on eternity past. This is before all things. God foreknew and he predestined. And this continues, though, in the course of history, in our own lives. Right? So we have eternity past and now we have here and now. What does God do here and now? Well, first, it says that he calls. It says those who are called according to his purpose, verse 28. And then also, he also called in verse 30. This calling is also nuanced. He calls us by means, by the preaching of the word. We talked about the external means, right? We have to hear the gospel in order to be saved. That's the usual means. We have to know who Jesus is. So there's the external call. And yes, God foreordains the external call. If he said, that one's mine, if he says, Jordan is one of mine, I've predestined him, then he is also going to ensure that at some point in your life, you hear the gospel, and at the same moment, the effectual call of God is on your life. The Holy Spirit changes your heart from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. He changes who you are from being dead in your sins and trespasses to being alive. That's the calling of God. It is both external by the preaching of the word and internal by the power of the Holy Spirit. In the context of the, of the Spirit, we can, can talk about things like regeneration. John 3 is one of my favorite passages about regeneration. Regeneration. Think of new creature, new birth, okay? 
if you're familiar with those terms, born again. John 3, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, and he's sitting there chatting with him, and Nicodemus says, okay, how does this work, Jesus? How does this whole salvation thing happen? And he's like, you have to be born again. And Nicodemus is blown away. He's like, how does a man, fully grown, enter again into his mother's womb? He said, and Jesus simply responds, unless you are born of the, of the water and the spirit, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. This calling that I'm talking about affects regeneration. It makes you alive again. It makes you a new creation, a new creature. That's 2 Corinthians 5.17. It causes us in this moment where God changes our very nature. And like, this is... This may be a little philosophical for us today, but here I am. I'm going to do it anyway, all right? God doesn't just, like, do violence to your will. He doesn't just go, oh, well, like, well, you're going to decide and then somehow do something against, like, everything that you are. No, he changes your very nature, which sits underneath your will. If you're thinking about, like, the layers of an onion, it's pretty tightly in the core. Who you are, the very nature of who you are which is by default a slave to sin, he says, no, mine regenerates you. And, and at that point, and at that point, it causes us to deeply consider and decide. That's that external bit, right? We place our faith in Christ. In the process of this, he gives us that faith, which is a gift according to Ephesians 2. If you've ever thought that your faith was somehow the thing that merited your salvation, you're wrong. Ephesians 2 says, it is a gift from God so that no one may boast. You're not different than anyone else other than the sovereign choice of God on your life. If you think that your faith is what merits your salvation, you're wrong. But your faith is what justifies you. This gift that God has given, it says this in the passage, those whom he called effectually by the power of the Holy Spirit, he also justified, made right with him. How are we justified? Again, Ephesians 2 says we are justified by grace through what? Faith. Justified by grace through faith. A gift so that no one may boast. Again, this leads us to this external prayer of faith that we often see in salvation stories. Sometimes that's not the case. Some people start believing in Christ. They, they haven't ever been told, hey, you need to say the sinner's prayer, but they begin to pray, certainly. They trust in Jesus. But faith begets these external signs. They, we, we then decide according to the new nature that God has given us. How amazing is that? Like, this, is, this sort of transformation that I'm talking about in calling and justification, it's, it's removing the blinders from our eyes so that we can see the glory of God in all of its fullness and say, this is what I've been missing my whole life. This is what is different. Like, I can't help but say yes and amen. Look at how wonderful and perfect and beautiful God is. I want nothing more than him. That is the grace of God in this transforming power. You see, God sent Jesus to die for the whole world. 
but only those who exercise saving faith are ultimately saved. How does that happen? God regenerates us. Double grace. He sends Jesus Christ, his only son, to present the free offer of salvation to any who believe. And then you know what he does? He he sees that no one is going to believe unless he does something. And he transforms us and he says, you're mine. I'm going to change you by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I am going to cause you to believe by changing your very nature. The reason I'm going through all of this, and I'm going to get to glory in a second because, man, that's that's the piece we've been waiting for, right? The reason I want you to see all of this is because two weeks ago, I said every false gospel elevates man and diminishes God. Knowing this elevates God and diminishes man. The true gospel of Jesus Christ puts salvation firmly on God's shoulders. It is for his glory, not our own. This whole idea of being called and justified in the course of time must cause you to be thankful to God. From this moment of justification where we place our faith in Christ, no matter how you want to interpret this passage or whether you sit on the Reformed side of the fence or the the Wesleyan-Arminian side of the fence or you don't have a fence at all, wherever you want to sit here, you have to give all glory to God for salvation. We have to see that this faith leads us to worship. Every single thing that we see here in this passage is something God did, and we can say, man, look at that. I can, I can spend some time in eternity past, and I can think about everything that God has done, and I can say, thank you, Lord, for foreknowing me, and knowing me so deeply that you'd know every single one of my terrible sins, everything that would condemn me, and you said, mine anyway. You loved me anyway. Praise God for that. That is worship right there in a nutshell, all right? Then we can move on and we can go, no, not not only did he foreknow me, he predestined me for glory. Praise God for that. That leads me to even more worship. He predestined not only the beginning, but the end. He holds me through the whole thing. John 10, none will slip out of my hand. Next, he, call, he made it so that I would be called by the ministry of the word and by the Holy Spirit. Praise God for his transforming work in that. Worship. And he justified me by faith that is not my own, but as a gift that he gave me. Man. That should lead us to true worship. We should see ourselves as small and lowly in comparison to his grace, and we should say, My sole purpose in life at this point is to glorify and worship God for everything that he's done. It is just barely as much as he deserves, but he deserves so much more. Like it's all that I can do, but I am simply a faithful servant. But all of this culminates in the future, doesn't it? There's a promise made here, which is incredible. What does it say? And those whom he justified, he also, listen, past tense, glorified. Does that mess with your English skills a little bit? You feel glorified right now? I know I don't. 
<laughs> I feel a little funny. I don't feel glorified right now. Why does God use the past tense? When Paul wrote this, carried along by the Holy Spirit, inspired verbally by the Holy Spirit to write glorified or whatever it was in Greek. I, don't, I didn't do the word study on that one. When he wrote this, why did he say past tense? Because it's as good as done. By faith, we are justified. And the Holy Spirit holds us until the final day. Glory is as good as done if you trust in Christ. If you've ever worried about, well, what if God changes his mind? That's not how this passage is laid out. Read it. It's definite. If you trust in Christ today, if you're following him, you have no reason to doubt your assurance. None at all. This is good enough. It is good enough as done. If you are justified, that means if you have faith in Jesus Christ, that is what begets justification. If you have that, then you are glorified in this sort of already not yet sort of reality. How amazing is that? In fact, if that piece is left out, I think that this whole passage would just fall flat. This, is, this has been known as the golden chain of salvation. So uh, William Perkins says, 15th century Puritan. Love how he put that. The golden chain of salvation. If one link is broken, this doesn't work anymore. This whole passage goes kind of crazy. Like, why do I care if I'm simply justified? Well, I'm not sure I would if I don't receive the benefits of glory. But here it is. Each link just as strong as the next. And at the end, there is glorification. It is already as good as done. If you've ever doubted your assurance, if you've ever heard the word elect or election, and you've gone, well, does that mean I might not be? Check your faith. Check your walk. Are you walking with Christ? Are you believing in him for your salvation? If so, then it's right here. Those are the fruits of justification. Sanctification is what it is. What's next? Glory. Just glory. Man. I don't know, that, does that get you guys fired up at all? Like the idea that your salvation is so assured that it is just as good as done and I can just, I can worship God in freedom. I don't have to worry about whether I might fall out of his grace. I can go, man, look, it says if I am justified, I am also glorified. I have confidence that at the end of this life, that Jesus Christ is going to say, you are clothed in my righteousness. I see your sin and I paid for it. Here is, here is the wedding garment that you're going to need to get in. It's my righteousness. Here you go. Come on in. I have confidence because of the golden chain of salvation presented to us in this passage. This is God's sovereign will, his sovereign plan over salvation for all of his people. Assurance is something that we seem to have lost in a lot of churches and have lost, even lost in the in medieval period, like even as far back as that. 
there are, there are letters written from popes that said, hey, uh, we can't let people be assured of their faith, of their final destination. They, they have to constantly be worried about this. Otherwise, they won't do the right thing. But that couldn't be further from the case. All those who are justified are also glorified. Yes, there are times at which you should check your assurance. If you are not walking with Christ, if you're not trusting in him, you gotta ask the question. You definitely gotta ask the question. But if you are, if you say, man, I, I believe in Jesus Christ as my savior, I trust in his righteousness, and I am doing my best to walk with him, I'm, I'm confessing my sins before him, and, and I am just, I'm pushing along and trying to worship God with my life, man, you are assured of that final destination, that glory. I'm going to close here soon, so I promise I won't keep you guys too awfully long. I think this is a shorter sermon than average. What's the point? What, what's the point of, of reading this passage today? What's the point of believing all of this? Well, first I want to point us to verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Why is it important to believe in God's sovereignty over all of these things and, and the definiteness of this golden chain of salvation? It gives us confidence. Who can be against us? Who can be against us? This world can try to be against us, but ultimately, they're going to fail. Why? Because we have a sovereign God. No matter what comes against us, no matter what comes against you, Christian, if you believe in Christ, you trust in him today, you have hope and assurance of final glory. Man. So we should, we should have confidence. Look, the point is not laziness. I want to talk about God's sovereignty and salvation. I'm not talking about uh, you know, the frozen chosen. You might have heard this. Frozen chosen is the idea that if you believe in God's sovereignty and election, then you know what's the use in evangelizing? God will eventually save them somehow. That's not how that works. God works through means, and he's called you to this. But we can have confidence that as we preach, God will save all those he, whom he has predestined to save. No one falls out of his hand. It's not laziness. In fact, there's more confidence in preaching. Not laziness in preaching, but confidence in preaching when you believe in a sovereign God. It's not about your perfect presentation. It's about the power of God unto salvation, which is the gospel. It's about him working. It's not about laziness and, and holiness either. Just because God has said, I, like, you, are, you will persevere until the end doesn't mean you get to go, well, whatever. doesn't matter. It means you get to live a righteous and holy life. You are free now to do that. How amazing is that? You get to please him with everything that you are. I believe that the Holy Spirit, as he sanctifies you, will lead you to greater degrees of holiness. There's no, no excuse in not fighting sin here. Furthermore, we don't get to pick and choose who we preach to and who we don't. 
What's the, what's the point of listening and, and, and thinking about a passage like this? It means we need to preach the gospel to everybody that we meet, regardless of, of nationality or socioeconomic status or religion or take your pick. No matter who they are, they could be one of God's people, and they will respond to the gospel in due time if you preach the word to them. We don't get to pick and choose. If you don't believe in a, in a sovereign God, maybe you think that some people are easier to get to than others. If you don't think that God sovereignly changes people, then you might be able to go, oh, well, these people seem more receptive to the gospel because you know, they, they already have that sort of basic Christian morality, so I'll go to them. We'll do that. We won't worry about the, these other people who might not have that sort of background, upbringing, whatever else. But if you believe in a sovereign God, you can go to the worst axe murderer on the face of the planet with confidence knowing that if that person is one of God's people, then the gospel will be effective. How amazing is that? So how then should we live? How then should we live? We should live boldly in the preaching of the gospel. We should live confidently before God, knowing that he has justified us and he will glorify us. We should live thankfully and worshipfully before him. Again, this whole sermon is really geared to draw you into a greater appreciation of the God who saves all of his people. Not a single one falls through his fingers. I hope that's you today. I hope you, you believe in the God that saves sovereignly according to his good purpose. I hope that draws you to worship. If, if, if you think this is ammunition to do one thing or another, to argue with people or whatever else, and I, look, I know Calvinists love to argue drives me nuts. It's, it's, this is not about trying to find a, a way to, to argue with people over theology. If somebody says, hey, like, it's hard for me to come around to that. This is not a matter of orthodoxy. It's not a matter of orthodoxy. It doesn't make somebody not a Christian if they're like, well, maybe some could fall away or maybe, you know, this or that. But I do believe that we have a deeper and greater sense of worship when we believe in a sovereign God. Man, think about your life. Everything that led up to and away from your salvation. All the pieces orchestrated by God. All the, all the hard stuff, all the terrible things. He saw it. He, he was there with you. He was hurting for you in those, in those situations and yet he saw the final state that he was bringing you to. He was bringing you into glory. Thanks for listening to the Mosaic Church Sermon Podcast. For more information about Mosaic, including location and service times, or to support us financially, visit our website at mosaicrva.com or find us on Instagram and Facebook at Mosaic Church RVA. Remember, it's not about us, it's all about Jesus.